Yodely Yoo-Hoo, fellow violence lovers. Yes, it's the Nasty Pasty Podcast, hosted by yours truly, Monsieur Andrew John Roberts, aficionado of all things, even remotely inverted commas, nasty, driven into a collecting frenzy by the actions of the British government, all perpetrated way before I was born. Apparently, in the 80s, some MPs sought fit to demonise video dealers who were renting out a select, obscene list of horror films. Determined by our saviour, the Director of Public Prosecutions, assisted by the populist alarmist Daily Mail to be so obscene that they were somehow able to influence our nation's children into becoming murderous thugs. Yeah, it wouldn't really cut it nowadays, I'm afraid. So I set to collecting the obscene articles myself to see exactly what the fuss was about. And overall, I remain largely unimpressed. So I decided to scout out similar titles and see why they were not obscene, leading to this very moment where I'm gabbing on at great length about these sorts of films. Now last week we took a little bit of a detour into a non-horror category, the Italian spaghetti crime movie The Poliziotteschi. Now this week we're still clinging on to that theme tighter than a gammon clutching his Union Jack flag, but we're marrying it this time with a more horror-themed genre that is still from the country of pasta, pizza and machismo. So this week it's Polizio Gialli week, so we've got two films that meld the Poliziotteschi film with the Giallo murder mystery. It's still got car chases, gunfights and police investigations, but now with added misogynistic violence, killers in obscuring clothing and vicious death scenes. So like last week, it's also another happy accident that the two films this week have also unwittingly shared a director, in this case Massimo D'Alemano. Now before we delve into our first film, let's explore the origins of such combinations. While both Giallo films and Poliziotteschi movies have evolved from their own cinematic ancestry, the instance of both being in the same film also has its own origins in the annals of cinema. To understand that, we have to talk a little about Edgar Wallace. Now, Wallace was a British writer who lived from 1875 to 1932, and he wrote a great many novels and short stories. But what he's most remembered for now is the script of 1933's King Kong, which he tragically never got to see. But his novels are actually rather distinctive. Despite being of varying genres and styles, he frequently pitted law enforcement against murderers and underground crime waves, with quite Jallo-esque titles like The Clue of the Twisted Candle, or The Fellowship of the Frog, The Man Who Knew, The Daffodil Murder, The Yellow Snake, The Sign of the Leopard, etc. etc. Titles like these, along with works by Ed McBain or Agatha Christie, of course actually became the iconic giallo books that were printed in Italy, soon to inspire the Italian subgenre of the same name in its entirety. However, in the 60s, the German market began to sell Edgar Wallace novels, and the interest began to peak quite rapidly. So, in reaction to this, the German film company Rialto Film began to experiment with Edgar Wallace's uh, novels as source material for their films, and in 1959 they adapted The Fellowship of the Frog as De Frosch mit der Masque, which means The Frog with the Mask, and it became incredibly popular, and it started a spate of similar films from Rialto, today dubbed Crimi Films, which is short for Criminal Roman or Criminal Film. Rialto eventually acquired licenses for almost all of Edgar Wallace's novels, and they proceeded to flood the market with these films which had early elements of giallo. 
They had a greater focus on police investigations, though, with some extra car chases, some gunfights and interrogations. And very similar to Gialli, the titles of the film usually referenced an animal or colour, the killer themselves, or just enigmas related to the mystery. The plots are usually set in London, due to Wallace's original text and the fact that he was British, and there's elements like Scotland Yard, uh, castles, girls' colleges, basements, mansions, country houses, and there's all sorts of debauchery going on, like slavery, prostitution, drugs... And like the Giallo film, the main focus of these films is the build-up of a whodunit, with a villain who remains unmasked, really, until the conclusion of the film. Now, towards the latter end of the 60s and as the 70s broke into, the Crimi film had dulled in popularity, prompting some of the directors to start co-productions with Italy, who were producing very similar Giallo films. These co-productions, though, would spell the end of the crimi genre, as the much more popular giallo and the early slasher films were starting to take precedent. Now let's ditch the blackboard and the teaching cap. Let's get straight on to the good stuff with our first film of the week, What Have You Done to Solange? Student Elizabeth is making out with her married professor Enrico when she becomes distracted by a figure running through the woods, who is then attacked by a figure with a knife. 
The murder is soon discovered by the police and reported on the radio, which disturbs Enrico, who is then questioned with the other teachers at the Catholic school where he works. Enrico implores Elizabeth not to say anything as people will find out that he's having an affair with her, but regardless, Inspector Barth, the investigating officer, is suspicious of him. The deceased girl, Hilda, is revealed to have gone to confession several hours before her death and was killed with the knife being inserted into her genitals. On another visit to see Enrico, Elizabeth is followed by an unseen driver to the building who telephones Enrico and then hangs up. Enrico and Elizabeth meet up again alone, while the next day Barth finally cracks Enrico and he informs him of Elizabeth's witnessing of the crime. The killer then kidnaps another student called Janet by luring her out of her house. Gagging her and driving into the country, the killer strips her before killing her in the same way as Hilda. Elizabeth, waking from a nightmare, realises that she saw the killer was wearing a habit and phones Enrico to tell him, while Janet's body is discovered the next morning. Elizabeth decides to tell the school board about what she saw, that the killer must have been a priest. The killer finds his way into Enrico's apartment while Elizabeth is bathing and drowns her in her bath water, prompting Bath to arrest Enrico when she's discovered. Bath has Enrico's hair tested against the hair found under Elizabeth's nails, but it soon turns out to be dead hairs, whilst Elizabeth is also revealed to have been virginal. A witness who describes the killer as having a beard which indicates that the killer must have been wearing a fake beard since the hairs are dead. Upon his release, Enrico's wife Herta picks him up, having gained knowledge of the fact that he didn't have sex with Elizabeth. Some of the schoolgirls, including Helen and Brenda, who are Hilda and Janet's friends, mention that a new priest with a beard has been taking confessions at the church next door, and Herta discovers that the girl had a secret clique going on, where they frequently slept with older boys. Enrico talks with Phil, one of the girl's lovers, who says that the girls frequently had sex with men and between themselves, until something happened to a girl named Solange. Herta finds out where she lives, whilst Enrico finds a mysterious note written by Brenda to him, which mentions a woman called Ruth. Going to see her, Enrico finds her family dog beaten to death and Ruth herself killed in the same way as the other girls. Brenda encounters the mysterious Solange at a fun fair and walks off with her, only for the pair to disappear in a car. Solange's father, Mr Bascombe, who's one of the teachers, explains that Solange has been ill with some sort of infantile regression and has been kept under lock and key. The killer interrogates Brenda while Solange looks on, with Brenda recounting the story of she and her friends travelling to Ruth's house so that Solange could have an illegal abortion using a sterilised needle. It did not go well and causes extreme pain and trauma to her, causing her to regress into the way that she has today. The killer is then revealed to be Mr Bascombe, deeply angry at what's happened to his daughter and mutilating all of the girls and the woman responsible for putting her up to it. Bath, Enrico and Herta come across the disguise used by him and the hidden room where Brenda is still tied up, waiting for her impending death. As Bath returns to arrest him, Bascombe commits suicide with a gun leaving Solange even more irretrievably broken. second episode could easily throw a, let us say, a very negative light on our school. Mr. Bascom, what is Miss Seckles doing here? Miss Seckles has just told me something I think we all should know, with your permission, Mr. Leach. Please go on. Don't worry. Just tell them what you told me. It's just that... Mr. Leach, that afternoon, that Sunday, when Hilda was killed, 
Well, I was there. Oh, that is... I was on the river in a boat, and I saw it. Uh, and just what was it you saw? The murderer chasing Hilda. And then when he was actually killing her. And you waited until another girl had been killed before telling us? No. I didn't know until Mr. Bascom told me just now. That's true. Elizabeth had already told me her story. Go on, my dear. Finish it. At the time, none of it was very clear. I didn't even realize what was happening. But later, thinking about it... Well, go on. Now, I'm sure that the killer wore a long black habit. In other words, a priest. And what were you doing in a boat? Fishing? No, Mr. Newton. I was with a boy. Just as I thought. There's nothing wrong, Elizabeth. But it's possible that the boy could help us too, you know. No. He didn't see anything. His back was turned. He didn't even believe me when I told him. But Elizabeth, this priest, did you see his face? Would you know him if you saw him again? Massimo D'Alamano's Giallo picture, What Have You Done to Solange, is actually known by a wealth of other titles, like Who Killed Solange, Who's Next, Terror in the Woods, The Rara Girls, The School That Couldn't Scream, The Secrets of the Green Pins, or just plain old Solange, which is what it was called on VHS in the UK in the early 90s. It was released in 1972, in the midst of the Giallo boom that exploded again in the wake of Dario Argento's Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Written by a combination of Massimo D'Alamano and Bruno Di Geronimo, the script was reportedly based on the novel The Clue of the New Pin by the aforementioned Edgar Wallace, but in truth, the film bears little resemblance to Wallace's source material. The novel is actually about a locked room murder mystery, in which a man is killed in a locked room without a key in sight, except for a mysterious pin. This element of the pin is reserved in What Have You Done to Solange, but everything else is pretty much discarded for a much more traditional giallo mystery. It's theorised that the mention of Wallace's novel helped to sell the film in Germany as a crimi film, because despite the chasm of differences, stylistically it does have many features of the crimi film. There's a focus on the police investigation, the London setting, and also the locale of a girl's school, and a killer with an unknown identity. But similarly, it also has many giallo tropes, such as female victims, a sexually sadistic method of dispatch, a black-gloved killer, and a witness who can't quite remember the importance of what they've seen, and also an outsider who tries to defend his own innocence. And due to the German and Italian cooperation behind the film's making, it does perfectly blend the giallo and the crimi genres, with a hint of poliziotesky to boot. So, ultimately, it is rather a complex creature. Speaking of complex creatures, the film is probably one of the richest I've seen in terms of subtext and symbolism for a long time for a giallo. The cinematography and the style of setting has clearly been expertly thought out. There's frequent attempts to symbolise the clash between religion and liberalism. 
During the communion after Hilda's death, the opulent surroundings and the ornate religious iconography are counterbalanced by the shadowy confession booths and the dark veils of the clearly secretive schoolgirls. Equally, too, is the shot where Elizabeth leaves to go out of her house. One half of the hallway is rather dull, with an altar-like sideboard, some candles and books, whilst another is flourishing with flowers, a sunlit window and foliage on the wallpaper. Symbolically, it looks like Elizabeth is leaving the stale religious side and embracing the passion and the natural feelings represented by the flowers. Even the drowning of Elizabeth is also quasi-religious, like a bit of a perverted confirmation or christening. The fact that she's a virgin is even more symbolic, almost as if she's too pure to contaminate with sex, the killer saving her from this foul act in a way. Even the film's beginning scenes with Elizabeth embracing Eriko a rather Jesus-like figure next to the banks of a river, have a certain religious connotation to them. There's also strong themes of childhood and trying to hold on to it. Enrico's wife, who's apparently frigid, looks quite brusque, quite mature, and is very conservative in her dress and hairstyle, compared to Elizabeth, who's supposed to be the child, who's very carefree and less conservatively clothed. Herta eventually lets her hair down, both literally and figuratively, and becomes a lot more childlike, which is emphasised by her relationship with Enrico, who's a teacher. While Brenda's being interrogated by the killer, there's actually a doll nearby with its legs in the air, very eerily similar to Solange's trauma. A perversion of childhood, the toy is unnaturally in the same position as when Solange had her abortion. In the biggest instance, Solange is violated when she has her abortion, which is an undeniable symbolism of being grown up and having to take responsibility for one's own actions or mistakes. The trauma, though, is so intense for her that it's quite interesting how she reverts back to being a child, unable to deal with the realities of adult life due to her now permanent frailty. And she also notably first appears to us riding a carousel at the funfair, not unlike something that you'd see a child doing. Her father's reaction is to exact revenge upon the women responsible, in a cruel combination of vaginal penetration, which mirrors not only the abortion itself, but the sexual act that Bascombe reviles so much. He gags the girls so they cannot speak, and strips them of their clothes in a sexual manner before committing the act, almost forcing them to experience it as a form of sexual act from which they cannot escape. It's notable that the two exceptions are Elizabeth and Ruth, Elizabeth, of course, is innocent as she tried to talk Solange out of the abortion, but she did, however, have knowledge of the event, so Bascombe drowns her, but chooses not to violate her. Ruth is violated, but is still fully clothed, indicating that the sexual aspect of the murder was not Bascombe's intention. It was instead to make her suffer the abortion that she inflicted on his daughter. It's notable that instead of a straight-bladed knife as he's used on all the others, Ruth is killed with a slightly curved sickle, which would have increased the pain that she would have suffered. And it's also noticeable how he's bludgeoned her dog to death beforehand, almost depriving her of her own child in the same way that Solange has been taken away from him. Now, apart from the symbolism, the film is also well-crafted in many other ways. For example, the dubbing is probably one of the best I've seen in terms of matching the lip movements. The English version actually does feel quite natural. The murder sequences are also just on the right side of Nasty, without being too graphic in front of the camera. The aftermath shots, though, especially of the dead dog, are pretty horrid, so it does have rather a grim tone when it needs to. 
It's also quite well paced, with there's always something going on to further the plot, and the mystery is actually rather well kept. I kept pretty much suspecting everybody at one point. My only criticism is the introduction of Solange so late into the film. It smacks a little bit of Mrs Voorhees being so integral to the plot, yet introduced much later in the narrative than they needed to. The director, Massimo Dallamano, he was mainly a cinematographer who did some directing work too. For example, on Dorian Gray, What Have You Done to Solange? And the other film this week, What Have They Done to Your Daughters? His main work, though, was as a cinematographer, and he worked on stuff like Pontius Pilate, A Fistful of Dollars, uh, Bullets Don't Argue, and For a Few Dollars More, rather important and influential spaghetti westerns. Whilst writer Bruno Di Geronimo, we've mentioned before, as the writer of Flavia the Heretic. The producers were Fulvio Lucizano and Leo Pescarolo. Now, Lucizano worked on Barva's Planet of the Vampires, uh, The Night Child, Night of the Sharks, and Dario Argento's Wax Mask. Pescarolo, on the other hand, worked on Rings of Fear, which is the third entry in this trilogy, uh, The Truce, and also Dancer in the Dark, amongst others. The rather beautiful but haunting soundtrack was done by the ever-reliable Onio Morricone, whilst the cinematography on Solange was done by none other than Joe D'Amato, one of his earlier jobs. Now, he was credited as Aristide Massachese, which is obviously his real name, but he also briefly appears in this himself as one of Bath's detectives, who holds a newspaper during the stakeout scenes. The editing was done by Antonio Siciliano, who reappeared in What Have They Done to Your Daughters, as well as The Night Child, and also the David Hess horror film Hitchhike. Clarissa Ambach also did some uncredited work on the editing, and she's done some work for the unique Jess Franco, such as Vampiros Lesbos, and She Killed in Ecstasy, and she also worked on Lenzi's giallo picture Seven Bloodstained Orchids. The charismatic, yet roguish and cheating protagonist, Enrico, was played by Fabio Testi, a quite a rather well-known Italian actor who's been in all sorts, really, like Once Upon a Time in the West, uh, Tis Pity She's a Whore, uh, Barbarella, The Big Racket, Rings of Fear, Contraband, and Letters to Juliet. The deuterogonist, at least until her death, Elizabeth, was played by Spanish actress Christina Galbo, who'd been in The House That Screamed and The Sex Life in a Woman's Prison. But she's most recognisable, well, to, to us Video Nasty fans anyway, as Edna from The Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue, which was one of the Video Nasties. German actor Joachim Fuchsberger, who played Inspector Barth, is also rather uh, noticeable as he was frequently in crimmy films before this one, for example like The Face of the Frog, while Bascombe was played by Gunther Stoll from the giallo film The Bloodstained Butterfly. Camille Keaton is another recognisable face in the video nasty world. She played Jennifer Hills in the video nasty I Spit on Your Grave, but she also cropped up in Seven Bloodstained Orchids, Raw Force and Savage Vengeance. She's also due to reappear in the long-awaited official sequel to Miyazaki's Rape and Revenge tale, I Spit on Your Grave Deja Vu. Dalamano chose her for a thin, pale frame, as she looked quite vulnerable, and he asked her not to tan during filming to look as frail as possible. But Keaton actually found the film quite challenging, as she only spoke a little bit of Italian, and he only spoke a little bit of English. The teacher, Mr Erickson, was played by Giancarlo Badesi, who reappears in What Have They Done to Your Daughters, and he also cropped up in Salon Kitty and Caligula. 
And finally, Vittorio Fanfoni played the bearded neighbour of Enrico's. Now, he'd been in Kill Django, Kill First, uh, Who Saw Her Die, Pierre Paolo Pasolini's version of the Canterbury Tales, uh, Caligula by, Joe, uh, by Tinto Brass, and also uh, Dario Argento's Deep Red. Now, the film was rather popular in its native Italy, as well as Germany, when released theatrically, but the film would not be shown in the UK because it was rejected for a certificate in 1972. The film was not submitted again until way after the scandal was over in 1996, and it was released as plain old Solange. It was, however, subjected to a ridiculous 2 minutes and 15 seconds of cuts, removing bits of Elizabeth's drowning, some instances of nudity, shots of knives between victims' legs, and the aftermath shots of the girls and the dog. Pretty much everything that was even slightly violent. And the cuts were only waived in December of 2015 in the UK, when it was remastered and released by Arrow Video on Blu-ray and DVD. So that was What Have You Done to Solange? Now, Dalamano had practically set up a mini-trilogy of films that is now commonly known as the Schoolgirls in Peril trilogy. It started with Solange, and it ended with Rings of Fear, but let's go on to the second one now, which is What Have They Done to Your Daughters? A young 15-year-old girl is found by the police, hung in an apparent suicide. The autopsy reveals that not only had the girl engaged in multiple sexual acts before her death, she was actually pregnant as well. A maid phones in, recognising the girl as her charge, Sylvia, who didn't come home around a week prior. 
The District Attorney, Vittorio Story, along with Commissioner Valentini, investigate further and discover that Sylvia was actually alive until fairly recently, casting massive doubt on the idea that it was an actual suicide. Meeting with Silvestri, the Commissioner of the Homicide Department, Valentini hands the case over, who then discovers a photographer taking pictures of the building. When he reveals he was the one who called in the report, his photographs reveal that Sylvia was in a sexual relationship with an equally younger man for several weeks prior. When the young man Marcello appears to have had an alibi, it becomes clear that she seemed to have another lover at some point. Mr and Mrs Polvesi, uh, Sylvia's parents, return from a trip from Africa to identify her body, whilst Silvestri and Vittoria identify the location where Sylvia was killed, a mysterious apartment with a blood-soaked bathroom and a huge amount of sexual paraphernalia. Assuming that there's been another murder, the journalists suggest that a serial murder is on the loose. Mrs Polvesi tells the police that she found contraceptive pills in Sylvia's pocket and confronted her about it, only for Sylvia to threaten to kill herself, prompting her to hire a private investigator called Talenti. Silvestri, though, soon discovers Talenti's hacked-up corpse in his abandoned car and wishes to question his lover, the hospitalised Rosa. A mysterious man in bike leathers and a motorcycle helmet, however, breaks into her ward and attempts to kill her with a cleaver, only for Silvestri and his officer Napoli to arrive. Napoli gives chase on foot, only to have his hand hacked off by the killer during the escape, while Silvestri and some backup chase the killer through the streets, only for him to give them a slip through a train tunnel. Rosa indicates the vent in her room, where an audio recording is, revealing the systematic abuse of schoolgirls, including Sylvia, in an underground prostitution ring. Vittoria is sent a threatening letter, trying to warn her off the case, while Silvestri recognises the voice of one of the girls on the tape as Valentini's daughter, Patricia. On her way home, Vittoria is attacked in a car park by the killer, who murders her chauffeur and corners her in an elevator, almost killing her too. Patricia reveals that it's actually her friend BG who set her up with this man, and who, so who's actually unhelpful to the police anyway. It's then revealed that the photographer, called Bruno, who took pictures of Sylvia, is actually in on the entire prostitution ring, and phones an accomplice to check on him. Later, though, Bruno is stabbed to death by the man in the motorcycle gear, so rather than lose any information, Silvestri publishes that Bruno has survived and is going to testify to draw the killer out. A prominent doctor commits suicide in reaction to this news, and a mysterious girl called Laura, who attends his funeral, is then questioned by Vittoria. She was a victim of the doctor, who was also involved in the ring. At the doctor's, Silvestri finds a list of the men connected, including a minister of Italy, whom Silvestri and Vittoria find is virtually untouchable. With a report from two little girls on the location of the motorcycle killer, Silvestri heads there just as the police open fire on the man, killing him. Silvestri tries to further the case with his superior, with the help of Vittoria and Valentini, only to be shot down and told to be happy that a murderer is dead and that the prostitution ring is dissolved. Valentini resigns in frustration, while Vittoria and Silvestri tell their boss to go fuck himself. Let me take your panties off. Who's this Bruno? What a load of fuss for a few hours in bed.
15 or even less. Sure, I know I'm still a child, but I'd rather not have a kid every nine months. <laughs> if she's a runaway, sir, it'll turn up if the parents reported it. We're still checking. This girl didn't commit suicide. She was killed. And I suggest you cooperate with us now. Oh, come on now, let's get this straight. Am I free or have I broken some law? Yes, you have broken some law. And no, you're not a free man. Inspector Silvestri! If the rules forbid me to say anything else or ask her anything else, how am I supposed to solve this case? How dare you say the case is resolved? It's not so. And you might at least have discussed it. But I didn't want to involve you. And I suppose Pilot's statement will come from his coffin. You may have the kind of big names that we can't touch. It can't be touched without orders from the very highest authority. Never is what that means, as usual. Inspector, I think you still have a murderer to find. A friend with the meat cleaver. <coughs> Cut you into little pieces like a coffee friend. Just tell me where you get it. Much less satisfying, one could say, than Solange, What Have They Done to Your Daughters is a 1974 Polizioteschi film with giallo elements. Whereas Solange was mostly a giallo with some Poliziotesco elements, this is the reverse situation. Now, the original title of the film was La Polizio Chiede Aiuto, which means the police need help. It's quite apt for a film like this, really. Others, like the co-ed murders and the Infernal Blade, only refer to the giallo element, whilst the Spanish title, Corruption of Minors, just pretty much gets to the point. But in either title, it's much more noticeable how more focused this film is on the police side of things. That's not to say that its giallo elements are bad, because they're certainly not. But And you can actually say that they're just as influential as anything else. The combination of Poliziotesky and Giallo was probably a conscious one on behalf of Dallamano, as by 1974 the Giallo was becoming more saturated at the Italian cinemas, whilst the Poliziotesky was beginning to accumulate attention. So, presumably to cash in on both markets, he blended them together in this film, quite successfully as well. While the subject matter is just as dark as the one in Solange, concerning a rampant prostitution ring of underage girls, the film's Poliziotesky influence makes the film just much more cynical and therefore less harrowing than his previous film. It was shot at Dia Studios in Rome, and it's much more styled as a police thriller. We have the prerequisite car chases, lots of interrogations and crime scene scanning. But there are some really good giallo sequences too, such as a victim being stalked in a hospital, um, a dead reporter falling out of a bag in pulverised chunks, um, an officer having a hand lopped off, and a chauffeur taking a cleaver to the back. In one of the best sequences, Vittoria is stalked by the motorcycle maniac in a car park, and then an elevator, and it really ramps up the tension quite well. In fact, elements of this sequence seem to have been mirrored much later in the 1981 Canadian slasher film Happy Birthday to Me, while the appearance of the killer himself was echoed in Ken Hughes' slasher giallo hybrid, Terrorize, also known as Night School. The only unfortunate thing, though, is that the identity of the killer is rather throwaway. He's simply a name out of a book that they pluck early on in the film, and there's no real reveal as as such when he's finally stopped. Which leads rather comfortably onto our next branch. The film's end is the most cynical of almost any of the other scenes. Not only does the killer get stopped in in a rather perfunctory way, but the police officer's efforts are completely wasted by the end of the film. 
The perpetrators of the child prostitution ring effectively get away with it, owing both to the social status and position of the perpetrators involved, and the fact that they have influence over the prosecutors and police superiors, ruining any chance of them being brought to justice. We as viewers are treated to all of the investigation, but none of the payoff, making the film leave quite a bitter taste in our mouths, as well as the main protagonists, who spurn their career in different ways. The film seems to suggest that they just should be happy that the ring is disbanded and that the killer's been stopped, and it leaves it feeling quite anticlimactic and unsatisfying, sadly without reason, because the rest of the film is also just as pessimistic. Vittoria, for example, is constantly reminded about how she's perceived as not being tough enough for her job as a district attorney, and even though she succeeds in cracking the case effectively and also avoiding certain death from the killer, her achievements have no reward. Valentini is clearly dedicated to his job and wishes to rid the streets of scum, but he's unable to protect his own daughter from the ring. Silvestri as well puts everything at risk, including his own professionalism, his own moral standards and even his career itself, in order to bring down this ring, only to be slapped at the end pretty much with a meagre offer of a promotion rather than justice. Whilst this aspect of the narrative does fall a little short, the rest of it is rather entertaining. As the, pace of the film re- as the pace of the film's reveals, flashbacks, and action sequences are plenty enough to keep you interested. The violent bits peppered throughout, they help to bring the proceedings to life, and it has enough stylistic touches to make it eye-pleasing. Some of the sequences, though, actually do manage to elicit some laughs, too, such as Talenti's girlfriend's reaction to his hacked-up corpse, or the clearly fake hanging body of Sylvia. The media's insistence of publishing a story about a serial killer is also rather bewilderingly silly, but sadly, it's a little closer to home than we might care to admit. I mean, who ever heard of a newspaper trying to push their own agenda? It's also hard to not smile when the grim goings-on, like explicit details of carnal intercourse that the now-deceased Sylvia was involved in, or combing through the blood-splattered remains of an abandoned apartment, are interspersed with a rather jolly soundtrack, with a pepping up la-la in the middle of it. This kind of jarring juxtaposition between scenes is nothing new to the Italians, who seem to have made it its own little art form. Of course, director Massimo Dallamano returned for this film, and he equally lent his writing skills to this one too. He was joined on the writing front by Ettore Sanzo in his first debut as a writer. Now, he went on to write the video nasty Late Night Trains, as well as Last House on the Beach, which we've covered before, and Lucio Fulci's Poliziotesque film Contraband. The music was done by Stelvio Cipriani, who we've mentioned before on the Papaya Love Goddess of the Cannibals episode. He, of course, did the music for Mario Barber's Bay of Blood, as well as Iguana with the Tongue of Fire and Deported Women of the SS. In fact, most of the crew on this film are recurring, who we've encountered before, like the editor Antonio Siciliano, we just mentioned him on the previous film, or even cinematographer Franco Deli Colli, who we've mentioned before when we covered Ghost House and also Macabre. Main girl, Vittoria, she was played by veteran Italian beauty Giovanna Rally. She'd been in The Invisible Woman, uh, Carnival of Thieves, and Cold Eyes of Fear, whilst Claudio Casanelli stars in this as the disgruntled Silvestri, and we've seen him before in Hands of Steel. Mario Adolf, who played Valentini, has been spotted before on Nasty Pasty as well. He was in Short Night of the Glass Dolls. Franco Fabrizzi, though, who played the photographer Bruno, he also played the Peeping Tom in Late Night Trains, as well as a small part in Death in Venice. 
American actor, Farley Granger, he played Mr. Solvesi, and he'd been in a huge catalogue of American TV shows and films from Alfred Hitchcock's Rope to Joseph Zito's The Prowler, released over here as Rosemary's Killer. Other familiar Italian faces also pop up, like Marina Berti, who played Mrs. Solvesi. She was in Late Night Trains. There's also Michaela Pignatelli from Argento's The Card Player, and Ferdinando Marolo from Fulci's Contraband. There was Corrado Gaipa, and he played the male DA, but he had a small role in Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather, uh, Sex Life in a Woman's Prison, and Red Knights of the Gestapo. Napoli, who certainly needed a hand in this film, was played by Salvatore Pantillo, who had bit parts in Deep Red, The Psychic, and A Man Called Blade. Eleonora Marana, who played the Silvesi family maid, she made a small appearance in The Flower with the Deadly Sting, whilst Renata Moir, who played the Doctor's victim Laura, appeared in the much more graphic Sarlo 120 Days of Sodom and the Nazi exploitation film Nazi Love Camp 27. Attilio Dottesio, who had a small role as the coroner, surprisingly had been in multiple Italian films, such as The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, uh, Death Smiles on a Murderer, Deep Red, SS Experiment Camp, SS Camp 5, and also Hotel Paradise. But conversely, the main victim, Sylvia, was played by Sherry Buchanan, her first screen role. She'd appear in just a few memorable Italian horrors, such as Tentacles, uh, Last House on the Beach and Zombie Holocaust, where she sadistically has her vocal cords removed. Like Solange, the film did rather well in Italy, grossing 1.3 billion lira at the box office. Unlike Solange, however, the film bypassed the UK altogether, and it didn't receive a release until 1998 on VHS, also missing the nasty scare. It did receive some minor pre-edits, however, totalling 25 seconds, mainly to the hand being severed with a cleaver, the shot of the head falling out of the car trunk, and some shots of Sylvia's naked hanging body. By 2008, it was released uncut from Shameless Films on DVD in the UK, and it has remained available ever since. Well, that's all for today, folks, so thank you very much for making it this far. Today's episode on Polizio Jali is over, and it is the last episode from me for a while. Well, a week anyway. I'm off to Sikinthos for a week to enjoy some sun and ethanol-based refreshments. So join me again very soon, though, as I'll be back in business as soon as I'm back on June 8th. And when I'm back, we'll be doing the remaining Animals trilogy that was started by Dario Argento with Bird with the Crystal Plumage, which was covered on one of our previous episodes. But until then, take care, everybody, stay safe, and the nasty pasty will be back soon. Arrivederci.